And Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that by your spirit, we may have understanding, but not only understanding. Father, we pray that you would give us a desire to apply it to our lives. We pray that you would convict us in areas where we might need to be convicted, but we also pray for comfort in areas where we might need to be comforted. We pray that your word would do all that you are are intending it to do. We pray that it would do your work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, in order that we would be conformed to Christ's image, but also that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be starting a new chapter today, and this is taking a totally different direction from the direction that we've been going for several chapters now. This is a chapter that has a lot to do with suffering. And it was interesting that for our catechism question today, we talked about the benefits uh, that are given to those who are effectually called. You'll notice that freedom from trials is not on that list. Freedom from difficulties, freedom from afflictions, nowhere on that list. It's because Christians can expect to experience trials. The Bible has so much to say on this subject, on the subject of of trials, and there is therefore so much that we could say about trials just based on the, the wisdom that Scripture gives us about trials and afflictions. But there's one truth that does emerge from the pile of these soul invigorating truths about trials. And this one truth is somewhat counterintuitive. It's kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around or to accept, and it's this. It's that God will allow his children to experience trials, but that he uses those trials only, and that's an important word here, God uses trials only for the good of his people, never for evil, never for bad, not with his people. It's difficult for us to see in the moment what good could possibly come from a trial. Anybody been there? I mean, I know I have. In the midst of a trial where I I can't figure out what kind of good could possibly come from that. But when we can't understand it in the moment, which will often be the case, what we have to do is fall back on what we know about God. What we have to do is believe by faith that God uses trials only and underline that word in your mind, only for the good of his people. That is to say that there is no bad or unforeseen purpose that is accomplished by our trials, not even one, not even the slightest bit. See, when Jesus gave the parable of the soils in, uh, in Matthew 13 and in Mark chapter 4, Jesus told us uh, one of the purposes that trials serve. And that purpose is uh, revealing whether or not our faith is genuine. He says of one of the types of soil, the rocky soil, he says other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. 
Now, that's the first uh, major parable that Jesus tells in the book of Mark, and the disciples are just confused. They're completely perplexed by this, uh, this parable, and so they ask Jesus about it, and Jesus explains it for them. He explains the rocky soil, saying this. He says, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is he explains this. In other words, a faith that receives the word with joy and yet is without a firm root is not a legitimate, enduring faith. What kind of faith does endure trials and persecutions and afflictions? That's the final soil, the soil that bears a rich, fruitful harvest. The seed that endures, the seed that isn't shaken by trials and isn't uprooted by riches and worldly temptations, that's the picture of legitimate, saving faith. Trials, therefore, serve a very worthy purpose, a good purpose. Trials have a way of testing and refining and revealing True, saving, enduring faith. And that's important because Jesus promised back in chapter 10, just a few verses ago, that all the sheep that have been given to him by the Father in the covenant of redemption in eternity past will do what? They will endure. All of them. Every single one. None will be lost. Not even one. No one can snatch them from his hand. Back in chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said it this way. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how can Jesus make such a promise that his sheep will all endure, that nobody will snatch them from his hand? How can he sure be sure that there will be nothing that shakes us or uproots our faith? That's an important question. And as we start the 11th chapter of John today, we're going to see an indirect answer for that question. It's because Jesus, who is fully God, has power even over death. And in this wonderful chapter, this is, this is a chapter that people love. Uh, we're going to witness Christ demonstrating this power by raising a man named Lazarus from the grave. The last several chapters of John's gospel testimony have, uh, have focused on Jesus and the Pharisees. He's been confronting them. He's been maybe even provoking them a little bit, and he's been confounding them. They're just confused by him. But at this point in his ministry, as we come to chapter 11, one of the things that we need to understand is that Jesus has spent all this time with the Pharisees, and now he's done with them. So chapter 10 ended by telling us, that Jesus withdrew to the region where John the Baptist had ministered. That was a region that was out on the other side of the Jordan River. That's where Jesus' ministry is now taking place. That's where he's gone. And that carries over into chapter 11. Speaking of John the Baptist, by the way, when he was experiencing this fierce trial, uh, he did what a lot of people do when they experience trials, when they're in the midst of a trial and can't see what good God could possibly be trying to accomplish with that trial, he started to doubt. He started to doubt. 
When we're consumed by fear and when we're consumed by grief, it's, it's really easy for the flesh to get the best of us. Even genuine, mature Christians are prone to wonder why God, being all-powerful and only good toward His elect, would allow them to suffer. In John the Baptist's case, he was in prison. And at one point, while he's in prison, he had visitors, some of his disciples apparently, and he sent some messengers to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? In other words, he was thinking, because I belong to God and believe in the Messiah, this shouldn't be happening to me, should it? See, his affliction gave rise to doubt. And if a man as faithful and as bold and as strong as John the Baptist can have doubts in the midst of suffering, believe me, friends, we can all be sure that we all are prone to do the exact same thing. The Gospel of John is the only one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that gives us an account of the miracle that we're about to see in this chapter, in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, I can't tell you why the other three Gospels don't include this miracle, but I can say that the other Gospels do tell us about Jesus raising others from the dead, accounts that John doesn't include. Uh, But John wrote this book probably a couple decades, at least, after the other Gospels were written. And he seems to have wanted to include certain things, certain themes, perhaps, that the other three Gospels didn't include. And of course, that doesn't give us a reason to doubt the reliability of John's Gospel. Uh, As John notes at the end of this book, the very last verse of the book, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were all written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, he wants you to understand that he's not trying to line up everything with the other Gospels necessarily. He's saying Jesus did so much stuff that we can't record all of it. So today we're going to be looking at the first six verses of chapter 11. And the point of this passage is this. The point of this passage is that while we may not know or understand why exactly God allows us to go through trials and afflictions, we can be confident that he's sovereign over our trials, that he's using our trials only for our good, And that he works that good according to his perfect timing, not by our fallible timing. So let's start by looking at the first three verses of chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So we're introduced to three new characters here, new to this book anyway, the first time John's told us about them. If we're familiar with the other three gospel accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we already know 
a bit about Mary and her sister Martha, but this is the first time that John has said anything about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. It would be good for us, therefore, to know kind of the backstory. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What, what's their standing with Jesus? Uh, before we continue uh, much further in this text, it would be good to just become familiar with who they are. The first person that John mentions here is Lazarus. Specifically, he refers to him as Lazarus of Bethany. Now, if you know anything about, uh, about Jewish traditions, uh, usually a Jewish person is named, uh, you know, like Lazarus, son of, uh, you know, whoever the name of his father is. But in this case, it's Lazarus of Bethany. And Bethany is a very interesting name. Uh, perhaps that's why John uses it. It's an interesting name because of what we're going to see in this chapter, um, because it has two meanings. Uh, Bethany has two meanings. It can mean the house of figs or the, or the house of, of dates, or it can mean the house of misery or affliction. And that latter meaning certainly does describe the state that Lazarus is in as this chapter begins. And by the way, if the day ever comes when we want to rename this church, we can cross Bethany off the list. One of the interesting things to note about Lazarus, though, is that he is never quoted. He never says anything, at least not in, in John's gospel. There, there's, there's debate about whether the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was actually Lazarus. We'll just leave that unknown for now. But everything that we know about Lazarus uh, is really found in John's testimony here, in his gospel here. After Lazarus is raised from the dead later on in this chapter, his family's going to hold a banquet to celebrate, and Jesus would be, of course, invited. He's kind of the guest of honor, and he is seated with Lazarus. Uh, that's where, something that we'll see when we get to chapter 12. But we're told that multitudes, crowds of people come to see both Jesus and Lazarus. We don't know how many that is. Maybe it's dozens. Maybe it's hundreds. But then we read this in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. John will write, But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. How ironic. A man who's never quoted as saying anything is convincing people to believe in Jesus. That seems odd. He never says anything. So I would kind of guess, it's a little bit of an educated guess, I suppose, that he was more of a silent type. But he's a reminder that God can use the silent type. He's even possibly a reminder that you don't have to be an outgoing, super talkative person to have an impact that lasts for eternity on those around you. That's Lazarus. The next people that we're introduced to here in chapter 11 are Mary and her sister Martha. We find Martha in, uh, first mentioned in a very well-known passage in Scripture in Luke's Gospel. Uh, at some point earlier in, uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was actually at their house and he was teaching. And Mary was at his feet listening very carefully, paying very close attention to everything that Jesus had to say. In fact, she was paying too much attention to Jesus, in Martha's opinion, and so she comes to Jesus and she complains about Mary. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister, Mary, 
has left me to do all the serving alone. Then tell her to help me. That's from Luke chapter 10, verse 40. But if you know the story, you know that Jesus didn't turn to Mary and rebuke her. You know that he actually kind of gave Martha a light rebuke. Instead of reproving Mary, he ends up reproving Martha. He says to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. In other words... Mary had chosen wisely and correctly in setting aside every other earthly, worldly priority in life in order to listen to Jesus. And it's a lesson that Martha apparently took to heart because in the following chapter, Jesus is once again in her house. He's reclining with others as Martha serves them, except this time she's not complaining. Mary was a woman who is seen constantly paying the closest attention to Jesus. Every time she has a chance, she is sitting at his feet. And in that time, in in the first century, that was the posture of a committed, devoted disciple, was to, to sit at the feet of the master. John identifies her here in chapter 11 as the same Mary that we're going to see in chapter 12 where she opens a bottle of very expensive perfume and uses it to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. Uh, Why does John mention it before he even tells us that story? It seems that uh, John's audience was already familiar with that story. They'd already heard about how she broke open an expensive bottle and perfume and used her hair to wash Jesus' feet. But Mary's actions regularly give us an illustration, a vivid picture of a life that is completely devoted to Jesus. Her life is a picture of true saving faith. She gave everything to Jesus and for Jesus. She was entirely devoted to him. All of this is to show us that Lazarus, Mary and Martha were all believing, faithful disciples of Jesus. And that brings us to a very important principle given what John has told us here in the first few verses. And that's this. The Lord allows his people, even his faithful people, to experience trials, including sickness. In fact, including sickness unto death. For some people who claim to be Christians, this would just be heresy. They they would completely denounce any possibility of a faithful Christian getting sick. There are many, many who are in this movement that we call the prosperity gospel that teach the exact opposite. They teach that the faithful Christian cannot get sick. And that's why the movement is sometimes referred to as the health and wealth movement. Uh, They believe and teach that faith is like a a, a super vaccination uh, that prevents the believer from getting sick or from any form of suffering and from every form of poverty. Thus, the person who gets sick, even though they claim to be a Christian, they're the person to blame, according to the prosperity movement. They got sick because their faith was too small. They got sick because their faith was too weak. That is just, that's complete nonsense. 
That is spiritually abusive theology. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth message, is one of the most destructive, one of the most malicious, one of the most dangerous heresies of our time. It actually started here in the United States. It was really given birth here in the United States. And our country has taken all of this great technology that we have to export it to all these countries, impoverished countries, around the world. All in the name of taking advantage of those impoverished nations. All they had to do, according to the health and wealth message, was sow a seed of faith, of course, in the form of a check made out to so-and-so's ministry. And the promise was that God will heal and materially bless in exchange. What a load of lies. Again, this is just spiritually abusive theology. No, Scripture's clear. From beginning to end, that even the godly suffer. Is there anyone godlier than Christ? I mean, he is God in the flesh. Did he suffer? Can we expect to be treated better than he was? No. Jesus allows his people to experience trials and afflictions. Does that, does that surprise you? Does that fit in your expectations? I, I, I hope it does. I, I hope that you understand this principle. It does seem to take Mary and Martha by surprise, however, that their brother Lazarus, who Jesus loves, is sick. In, in fact, the message that they send to Jesus, they, they say, Lord, behold. Behold is a, is a, a word that uh, that means they're shocked. It's, it's kind of a word that indicates that they're surprised. Lord, behold. The implication is, what's going on here? They just don't understand why Lazarus would be sick. So, Lord, behold. And look what they say. They appeal, by the way, to Christ's love for Lazarus. So they're at least somewhat shocked, dismayed, by the fact that someone Jesus loves would be falling sick. But their petition unto Jesus gives us at least three lessons, three important principles about praying to the Lord. The first is this. They made their situation known to him. They just made their situation known to him. Very simple. They just put it in his hands, made him aware of it. John Calvin notes this. He says, quote, the chief thing is to cast our cares and whatever troubles us into the bosom of God that he may supply the remedy. This is how those women act toward Christ. They explain their trouble to him intimately and look for relief from him, end quote. So it, it's not that the Lord isn't already aware of the situation until we tell him, but by bringing our prayers and petitions to him and just saying what our situation is. We're simply trusting that situation in his hands, knowing that he can provide whatever solution he likes. By the way, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for using medicine or a place for doctors. Uh, there, of course, is. 
J.C. Royal says this, he says, quote, We must spare no pains to obtain the best medical advice. We must assist nature in every possible manner to fight a good fight against its enemy. But in all our doing, we must never forget that the best and ablest and wisest helper is in heaven at God's right hand. End quote. Mary and Martha illustrate this principle for us. They simply take the matter and they put it in Jesus' hands. Secondly, notice the basis of their petition. They don't say, the disciple who loves you so much has gotten sick. No, what do they say? They say, he whom you love is sick. And, and it's not to, that's not to say that Lazarus didn't love Jesus. He clearly did. But like all of us, like every single one of us, Lazarus loved Jesus with a far lesser love than Jesus loved him. You do realize, by the way, that our love is nothing compared to the love that Jesus has for his people, right? Our love for him will be perfected one day in glory. But for now, our love at best is feeble and frail. Even in our best moments, we are prone to be so weak. In light of this truth, A.W. Pink says this. He says, quote, Christ's fathomless love for us and not our feeble love for him is what we ever need to keep steadily before our hearts, end quote. Being mindful of this truth will be greatly comforting to you, friends, especially in the midst of a trial. Because there will be times when you could get so sick and so tired of wrestling with sin and of mortifying the flesh, it's perhaps easy and natural to start thinking that maybe there's a connection between your sin and that situation that you're in, that trial that you're in. And you might even be tempted to think that God's punishing you. Not that he's working it for your good, but that you're paying now for what you have done. But it's also easy to convince ourselves that we've sinned so much. Do we really love Jesus that much? Can, can we really go to him with a sin that we have? Isn't he sick of dealing with us as, as we would be sick of dealing with somebody who came to us time and time again every single day with a problem that they're having? It would be easy for us to think this way. It's easy to convince ourselves that, you know, uh, well, you know, look at how small my faith is. Why would Jesus listen to me? No, don't look at your faith. Don't look at your love for him. The basis for our petition is not our love for him. It's his love. For us, his love for us is greater. Keep your eyes on that. Don't ever forget the love that we have for him even flows out of the love that he has for us. John writes in his first epistle, we love, why? Because he first loved us. There's a cause and effect there. We love him because he first loved us. Now, someone might say, you know, I, I agree with that. I believe that God loves everyone equally. Here's a difficult truth. This is a controversial truth. He doesn't love everyone equally. He has love for all. Yes, he, he absolutely does. 
But he has a special love. He has a particular love. He has a covenantal love for his bride, for his people that he doesn't have for people who aren't his. Think of it this way. The church is likened to the bride of Christ, right? We're called the bride of Christ. Does a husband have a special, particular, covenantal love for his bride that he doesn't have for other women? Well, he should. Uh, he better, right? Uh, wives, go ahead. Yeah, he better. And likewise, Christ has a love for his bride, the church, that those who aren't in the church will never know and will never have unless they repent and believe in Christ before death takes them. Jesus hears our prayers. He cares about our needs, not because of our love for him, but because of his great love, his covenantal love, his particular love for us. The third lesson that we learn from the petition of Mary and Martha is that they didn't, they didn't place any demands or expectations on Jesus. How he would respond was, uh, was left entirely at his discretion, entirely up to him. Did, did they have hopes and expectations of what Jesus would, would do? Of course they did. They wanted their brother Lazarus to be healed. Or, and they, they believed that Jesus could do it. They believed that he could do something to remedy the situation. But they also knew that it was enough to simply put the matter in his hands and to leave his response to his own discretion. We would be foolish to say the very least, to think that God should ever, ever be subject to our will or to fulfilling our demands. Who are we to think that we could offer counsel unto the Lord? Who are we to think that we have even the slightest clue as to what the best way would be for the Lord to handle a certain situation? Were you there when he laid the foundations of the earth? Who set its measurements? Who stretched the line on it? These are questions that God asked Job when Job got a little bit too brave for his britches. We would be foolish to think that we could offer God counsel. But here's the question. Do you know that God's sovereign? And do you know that he's all wise? Do you know that he's all knowing? Do you know that he's all powerful? I hope you do. I hope you know these things. And do you know that you're not those things? You're not all wise. You're not all knowing. You're not all powerful. I'm certainly not. Again, I, I hope you know these things. And when we become aware of that, when we remain conscientious of it, it should completely dissipate any temptation we might have to put expectations or demands on the Lord. Rather, if we can simply remember his great love, his great power, his great wisdom, then we can simply know that it's enough to bring our requests to him and to leave it in his hands, confident that he is so powerful and so wise and so sovereign that he's actually able to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, Romans 8.28. 
How can God make such a promise? Can a God who is less than all wise, less than all knowing, less than all powerful, less than all sovereign, make a promise like that? No, he cannot. No, he cannot. But praise be unto God that he is all those things. And thus, he can make such a rich, comforting promise to his people. That he's causing all things to work together for their good. All things. All things. Not only do we have a a great illustration of prayer, a great example of prayer given by Mary and Martha, but we have a very clear example of how God responds to prayers in the way that Jesus responds to them. Let's continue looking at verses 4 to 6. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I think we can confidently say that Jesus' response here is counterintuitive, that it is not what we would expect. It wouldn't be the response that Mary and Martha were expecting. It wouldn't be the response that probably any of John's readers, including us, would be expecting either. What would we be expecting? We'd probably be expecting the same thing that I imagine Mary and Martha were hoping for, that Jesus would immediately heal Lazarus, right? Either he would rush to be at Lazarus' side, or, you know, Jesus can heal people from a distance. We saw him do that back in uh, John chapter 4 with the healing of the nobleman's son. But that's not what Jesus does here. It reminds us that God's ways are not our ways, are they? He doesn't act as we act. He doesn't think as we think. We think in terms of reacting. For example, somebody comes to me for help. What, what do I do? I react. I, I, I try to help based on what I've just learned, right? But God doesn't react to things. See, a reaction is contingent upon something causing a reaction. And nothing, God's actions aren't contingent on anything, They don't rely on anything except himself. His actions aren't dictated by anyone but himself. He has an eternal decree that he is working out. And what that means is that he not only doesn't do what we might expect him to do, but when he does take action, it often isn't done when we would expect it either. He has his own timeline. He doesn't react a couple weeks ago, I saw a post on social media, something along the lines of, maybe God gave us a new president to show us that the false teachers who had prophesied and predicted that our old president would remain in office were indeed false teachers. Now, there may be some truth to that, possibly. I mean, it's, it's at least possible. But does God react? That, that whole post was predicated on the possibility of God reacting No, God has an eternal decree that he is working out. He doesn't react. He's all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen. He knows every little detail of what's going to happen. 
Only those who are not all-knowing react. But God is all-knowing, and He is working out His eternal decree. So Jesus' response gives us a helpful, helpful perspective on trials and afflictions. He gives us God's perspective on trials and afflictions. He says something that might seem kind of confusing at first. He says, this sickness is not to end in death. And if you know what happens, you might be thinking, oh, really? Because Lazarus does die. But Jesus knew that while Lazarus would die, he knew that he was going to travel to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the grave. But this can be said of every sickness that every Christian suffers through. This sickness is not to end in death. It may take us through death, but every Christian's final destination is not death. Every Christian's final destination is life, eternal life. So Jesus is going to actually do something more important than relieving Lazarus of his sickness. He's going to demonstrate his power over death and thus his ability to uphold his promise to raise his sheep on the last day, to keep them until the end. And if death can't break us from Jesus' grip, then nothing can. And Jesus was happy to prove it. And that's what he's going to do. Of course, He would not only prove it with Lazarus, but he would also prove it himself by dying on the cross and by raising from the grave on the third day. He is stronger than death. Death is a defeated enemy. The truth is that every road that you will travel as a believer, roads that pass through humiliation, roads that pass through suffering, roads that pass through discomfort, roads that pass through public scorn or shame. All of these roads lead to glory, to life. And not only does Jesus lead us down these roads, but he brings us down these roads for our good and for his glory. And in Lazarus's case, Lazarus journeys on the road of severe illness for a great and worthy cause, a great and worthy purpose, indeed for the greatest and worthiest purpose, that is the glory of Christ. But there's a benefit for Lazarus in this too, isn't there? His life would be the one that testifies to the power of God over the grave. But, but apart from even his own fame, wouldn't the faith of Lazarus also be increased exponentially after he was raised from the grave? Of course it would be. And and not only the faith of Lazarus would be increased greatly, but so would the faith of Mary and Martha, who already have a great faith. It would become greater because of this. And not only that, but as we've already seen, many would come to believe in Jesus because of what's going to happen to Lazarus. The point is this, friends. There's something that's a lot more important than our comfort and our well-being in life. Living in comfort and well-being, that's not necessarily the greatest good. That's not necessarily the greatest goal. 
There, there was something greater and more important than Lazarus being delivered from temporary suffering. And that is both the quantity and the quality of Lazarus's faith and the faith of his sisters and the faith of those who would come to believe in Jesus and received eternal life because of what will happen to Lazarus. The question for us then, in light of this principle, the question for us is this. Are you, as a Christian, are you willing to endure suffering and hardship and affliction? Maybe the scorn or the mocking of man, discomfort for the glory of Christ? Is it worth it to you? This is one of the reasons that the Christian can't support the idea of euthanasia, by the way. Because we're not only called to suffer, but we are called and enabled to suffer well. And to suffer in a way that gives glory to Christ. We aren't looking for the quickest way to end suffering in our lives. What we're looking to do is to put the glory of Christ on display in our lives. And when does it shine the brightest? When our circumstances are the darkest. When everybody can see it. Is there a greater purpose? In your mind, is there a greater purpose than God, than Jesus being glorified through the demonstration of his love and his power in your life, even in your suffering? No, there's not. There's not a greater purpose in life than that. But the question is, do you you prefer, would you rather have a lesser agenda, a lower purpose in life? What is your chief end, your greatest purpose in life? Don't settle for the cheap stuff. Don't settle for things like comfort, money, power, or beauty. These are all things that you can lose in a second. Why would that be your greatest purpose if you can lose it in a second? Those things are all fleeting. And not only are they, unf- uh, not only are they, they fleeting, but they are ultimately unsatisfying. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we settle for a lesser purpose than that, If we pursue lower callings, lower agendas, lesser causes, things that might be here one day, but they're gone the next, we will miss out on so much. Richard Phillips says this in his commentary. He says, quote, If we resent God's glorifying himself through our trials and affliction, we will miss out on the joy and wonder that ought to be ours. God will glorify himself in our lives, for his glory is his chief end as well as ours. How much better for us to rejoice in all situations, knowing that God's glory is going forth through his sovereign grace for and through us. There's something better than comfort. There's something more lasting than riches. And that is the glory of Christ in our lives. John tells us that Jesus loved 
Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Look at verse 5. He loved these three. But look at how that connects to verse 6. This is where it gets a little bit confusing. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, so there's a cause and effect here. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Is it strange to see these two statements put together like this? Like we would think those two statements would not fit at all. But remember this, the next time you go through a trial, the next time you suffer, it's entirely possible that not only are you suffering despite Christ's love for you, but that you're suffering because Christ loves you. Never allow your trials or afflictions to cause you to doubt or to disbelieve his love for you. His love can't be shaken. He doesn't change his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't let those thoughts of doubt even get a foot in the door, even when you're in the midst of a trial. So why does Jesus delay here? Why doesn't he go straight to Lazarus' side? It's not because he didn't love these three. John's already made sure that we understand that he does. It's not because Jesus wasn't able. He's already demonstrated in multiple ways and on multiple occasions that he is more than able to do something about the situation. Not even because he was indifferent to their suffering. No, Jesus cares so much about the distress of Lazarus' family that he's going to weep with them over his death. No, Jesus delays because he loves his sheep. Because he loves us enough to not do what we would want or expect, but to do what is of greatest importance, and that is to make us more like himself, increasing our faith in him and glorifying himself in and through our lives, which is what we were created for. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that you have inherited this amazing, beautiful estate from a distant uncle. You, you've never heard of him, but you, you've inherited this, this beautiful, beautiful estate, a beautiful mansion set in a land with always an abundant harvest. Your land is going to stretch as far as the eye can see. It offers you every comfort, every joy, everything that you've ever wanted and more. You're, you're going to be able to live there for the rest of your life content. There's no place on earth where you could possibly be happier. The only downside is it's not where you are. So you have to travel through some rugged terrain and terrible weather to get there. Now, what would convince you not to go? Discomfort? I mean, discomfort, it's just temporary. We can, we can withstand discomfort. That's why we have children, right? Does that involve some pain and discomfort? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Absolutely, because children are a gift from the Lord. So if, it's, if discomfort is there, we can endure that. We, we can handle that. What about bad weather? Is that going to prevent you from going to this estate? No, we can get through bad weather. There are ways around bad weather. We can get through it. And so it is 
with our eternal destination in heaven. If we would endure temporary discomfort, temporary afflictions for a temporary home that gives us temporary comfort, how foolish would we have to be to refuse to endure temporary discomfort and afflictions for an eternal home that gives us a far greater comfort than any earthly home ever possibly could? The glory of God is our calling. Glorifying Christ is the highest purpose and the highest calling that a person can possibly have. And while God can be glorified in our comfort, of course, how much more is he glorified by the demonstration of his power and preserving love in the midst of our trials and afflictions? Would it have been good for Jesus to hurry off to Bethany to heal Lazarus. I mean, if that's what Jesus had chosen to do, if if Jesus had said, okay, I'm dropping everything and I'm going to heal Lazarus, could, could we say that that was a good thing? Sure, why not? Of course, but Jesus had a greater purpose in mind for Lazarus. And that is calling, effectually calling, many to believe and to receive eternal life through Lazarus's own personal testimony. Friends, we cannot always understand why God would allow us to suffer. There are many things, there are many purposes of God that we can't understand and will not understand, at least on this side of glory. But we can understand that God is good. We can understand that God is all-sovereign, that he's all-wise, that he's all-powerful, and that he's all-loving. We can thereby understand that nothing Nothing can snatch us from his hand. And we can understand that he has a covenantal, particular love for us. And with that in mind, while we might not know or understand why God allows us to go through trials, we can be confident that he's sovereign over our trials and that he's only using our trials for our good. And that he works that good according to his own perfect timing, not ours. Not ours. So friends, take your troubles to Jesus. Take them to him. He cares. If you have believed in Jesus, you never have to interpret your troubles or your trials as a sign of his lack of love, but learn to see them as something that he has ordained only for your good and for his glory. And in light of that, cherish the opportunity to glorify him in every circumstance you face, whether in comfort or in discomfort, whether in abundance or in want. And you will indeed glorify and enjoy him forever, just as he intended. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom, a wisdom that makes our wisdom look like complete foolishness, a wisdom that knows all things, decrees and ordains all things for the good of your people and above all for your glory. 
We thank you for the grace that saved us and would even use us to bring glory to you. How can we as fallen, sinful people give glory to a holy and perfect, righteous God? Only by your grace. Only by your grace. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to maintain this perspective, especially in the midst of our trials and suffering, in order that Christ would be magnified and glorified in our lives, and that those who love us and are near to us will see your great power and your great love demonstrated in our lives. Help us to surrender our lives more fully for that purpose, that we may enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.